0: You're listening to the Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. The conversation tonight, we're doing a theology of work and rest. Initially, Chad Costum and Lacey Amos were going to lead this talk. Chad didn't. Uh, Chad's down there watching his children, and so we had to have a pinch hitter, and there is no better pinch hitter than Bradley Patton. We're talking Kirk Gibson, 1988. Home run, game one of the World Series type of pinch. If we knew Brad. Yeah, limp (laughs) up here, limp (laughs) out. Uh, If we had known Bradley was available last November when we were planning this, we would have given it to him in the first place anyway. But so uh, we're really excited. We're talking about, he's talking about work tonight, which is very much, and vocation, which is very much in his heartbeat and his passion. So you're in store for good things. Uh, Our questions tonight are going to be questions four, six, eight, and 16 four six eight and sixteen so as we typically do we're going to begin by standing together reading a passage of scripture and i'm going to pray so let's stand together we're reading genesis two fifteen to be read together the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and keep it let's pray lord teach us tonight about work Teach us about your calling in our lives uh, to do work and to do your work. Thank you for the work that you've done for us in Jesus Christ, your son, in whose name we pray, amen. we will hear you gladly. Thanks.
1: Well, all right. So in the, the British version of The Office, uh, Martin Freeman, who plays Jim, more or less, states this, the people that you work with are people you're just thrown together with. They weren't your choice and yet you spend more time with them than with your friends and your family. And the only thing you have in common is that you walk around on the same bit of carpet all day. How many of you feel that way about work? That you really have nothing in common with the people that you work with or you you just go to work to get to the end of the day um it just ends up being this drudgery, right? So I want to talk about four four things tonight. I want to talk about the reality of work. I'm gonna talk about the reason for work. I'm gonna talk about the resurrection of work and the renewal of work. So there's the that, that's where we're going. There's an outline. So let's let's begin with the reality of work. American workers spend on average 45 hours a week at work, all told, that's approximately 40% of your waking time and probably the most time that you spend doing any one thing throughout the week. And so if you calculate all that up over a 40-year period, if you combine the hours that you would spend at church versus the hours that you would spend at work, it would be something like uh, 2,300 hours at church. Versus ninety six thousand hours at work, and I would like to suggest uh, that, on the whole, the church has failed to equip believers to live out their faith at work. And we talk about discipleship at church as as what happens inside the church. And basically, I think by communicating that message, what we've said is basically there's this 2% of your life that makes you right with God and the other 98% that you spend outside of the walls of the church uh, are less significant. But what I want to say tonight is that um, I actually think work is one of the primary places that you work out your faith. And so that's what what we're going to say, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And um, so so what do we do? Um, how do we talk about work? How do we think about work? Um, I think there have been four categories, uh, that the church has generally used to discuss work. Uh, and it's, it's these four things. Uh, we talk about work as it regards to ethics. So as personal morality, uh, we deal with, uh, stay away from the temptations and try not to cheat while you're at work or uh, try to do a good job of balancing your work and your family time? Or um, how, does, how is it that your work contributes to social justice? So in regards to ethics, we say, uh, you're a Christian, so work well and, and be a good person while you work. The second thing is evangelism. So we see work as, a, as primarily a place for evangelism. Uh, you cultivate friendships with your coworkers so that you may share the gospel with them, or you have Bible studies at work or you host events or conferences uh, that give a platform to a Christian to share their testimony or to share the gospel um, and then the third thing is enrichment so work as as personal transformation or maximizing your potential or something that you do to feel good about yourself. And then the last thing is we talk about work as regards experience. So this view says that work itself is, it has, it has value, um, that uh, secular work, work outside of the church, non-ministerial work is not second class, but that uh, you can discover your calling and align your spiritual gifts with your career, and now I'll, I'll confess, I find myself most solidly in this fourth category, um, because I think uh, it's the engine. That that's the engine that drives the other three. Uh, that if you if we can see work itself as being valuable and meaningful as it is, um, then that will basically push us forward to. Live well, and to share the gospel, and to um, accomplish your your personal goals as they line up with the gospel. So those are the the four ways that I think we have generally talked about it. Um, and so I want us to think um, I want us to think tonight about the church uh, as an aircraft carrier and not a cruise ship. And what I mean by that is when you're on an aircraft carrier. You load the planes, you fuel the planes so that they 're sent out on mission, whereas a cruise ship uh, you 're just along for the ride so i want us I want us to think about that as regards to work, so to do this to think this way we we need to retrieve a broader definition of what work is, um, so this will take us back to the Bible, it will take us back to the Reformation, and um, I think most of us when we're talking about the Reformation, have a small view of of what Christianity has gained from the Reformation. Namely, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merit of Christ alone, on the basis of scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, right? So you get these five solas, as it were. Uh, And so I think on Sunday, it's really easy for us to rest in our salvation from dead works, right? That God has saved us not, according to our works, but then on Monday, we become slaves to approval and slaves to uh, trying to find meaning in what we're doing on the weekdays. And so um, I'd like to use the word uh, vocation tonight. So I will probably use this word interchangeably with work and calling and vocation, um, but, I, but I'd like to use the term vocation because I think that it's holistic Right, it's uh, it's it has a directive sense of God's calling on our lives, and actually, the the root of our word vocation uh, comes from a Latin word, uh, vocare, which means to call. And so, I want us to think: what if what if we reimagined work as service to something or service to someone? rather than um, merely for our own interests? What if we thought about work, uh, not as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization, but one that sends us forth to serve our neighbors? Um, I think a proper understanding of work and vocation and calling, all of these things, uh, provide us with a, a clear picture of who we are as believers and how we're supposed to live in the world, both as individuals and both as a community, being the church so here's why here 's why we want to talk about vocation tonight. I think on a lot of fronts, there is uh, a lack of clarity about what we 're supposed to do with our lives for a lot of people we 're asking what what are we doing with our lives? What are we doing with our work? and I think a lot of people are searching for the for the answer um, and often right work is simply just this place where you go to earn money to give to the church or it 's a place where you go in order to share the gospel uh, with your coworkers. Um, but I think that uh, for us, for Christians, we have a, a richer understanding of what work is. It's, we work because God designed it that way. Um, but we also work um, because as followers of Jesus, uh, we are living out that calling in a way uh, that's just a little bit different from the world. So we need a, a larger, grander, more historic vision for what work is. Um, And uh, as followers of Jesus, we find our reasons for work in the Bible. So this is my second point, the reason for work. So we're here at Lenses. We want to view all of life through the lens of the gospel. And that's what we're going to do basically from this point forward. Um, So let's start at the beginning. Uh, I'm going to basically fly through Scripture right now um, so let we'll 's start at the beginning because for just about anything, I think it 's super important to learn uh, where, it, where it began, how things begin, and actually, the more I read Genesis one through three, the more convinced I am that Genesis is just so foundational for the Christian life in so many different areas in regards to creation and order and work and sexuality and so on and so forth it 's just so foundational so uh, in the beginning, God created. So God himself is a worker, um, a creator. And what we see in Genesis is unlike some of the other ancient myths uh, about uh, creation, uh, God did not create as a result of war, but he created in the overflow of his being, uh, of, of his love, um, so uh, so we, Genesis tells us, humans are created in his image as mirrors, more or less. So we reflect an aspect of God's work and being into the world. And uh, Genesis 2.15 explains a little bit more of this. Um, it says that Adam was put into the garden for, for two reasons, to work the garden and to keep it. So to work it and to keep it. And um, a lot of commentators on Genesis understand the Garden of Eden as kind of like a a prototype of the temple or a prototype of the tabernacle. And it's interesting when you read Genesis in this light, because the two Hebrew verbs, to work and to keep, uh, when they're used together in the rest of Scripture, they're only ever used of the priesthood. The work that the priests do in the temple. They work the temple, they work in the temple, and they guard the temple. They keep the temple. And so I think uh, what Genesis is telling us right at the very beginning is that Adam's work, when he was created, is something similar to the priest's work. He's supposed to be a kind of priest. Um, And uh, his work is not separated from his worship. And so we see at the very beginning that, that our work is to be related with worship in some way. Now you flip to the next chapter and Genesis 3 introduces this new phase into work. Um, we see that uh, that Adam and Eve take of the fruit that God commanded them not to take and um, there come curses from God. Uh, the ground is cursed and that's important not work. Work itself is not cursed, but the ground is cursed. And so the fruit of our work, uh, work becomes fruitless. Uh, work becomes burdensome. We're supposed to work the ground now and we'll produce, uh, fruit from the the sweat of our brows. Um, and there's, there's pain in childbearing, which itself is pain in work, um, or production. Um, and so, uh, it's interesting uh, because Ecclesiastes, if you fast forward to the middle of the Old Testament, gives us this really interesting picture of kind of how far humanity has moved from Eden. That you, you know the, the opening line of Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, right? Um, so work without God's redemptive promise or redemptive hope uh, is, is toil and futility and empty, It's vain. And so, uh, but even in Ecclesiastes, there's this refrain that comes all the way through. um, There's nothing better for man than to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil that God has given him uh, on the earth, for that is his lot. So there's in some sense a way in which we're supposed to enjoy our work, uh, even in the midst of the toil and the futility and the frustration. Um, So, that's Genesis one, two, three. Um, all right. At a bigger picture level, first eleven chapters of Genesis, you move from a garden in Genesis one to a city in Genesis eleven. You move to to the from the, from Eden to the Tower of Babel. Um, and Andy Crouch, uh, an author, makes this really interesting note um, that Eden itself needed to be worked and needed to be tended. Um, but Babel, on the other hand, is, is full of technology, right? It's full of work and progress. It's got bricks and architecture and people are working together. There's, there seems to be some kind of economy uh, in, in Babel. And so um, it's, there, there's progress. Um, but of course, we know uh, Babel is at root sinful uh, because the motivation for this work uh, is to make a name for themselves, and not to uh, further the development and the work and the, um, the being fruitful and multiplying across the earth. They're there to make a name for themselves. Um, so in that sense, they kind of displace God from the center of the story. Um, so we fast forward again to Exodus, right? And Moses, uh, God is giving Moses instructions for the tabernacle. And this is in Exodus 31, uh, God tells Moses that he is going to fill these two guys, Bezalel and Oholiab, with the Spirit of God to do the craftsmanship on the temple. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I might be misspeaking here, but I think this is one of the first times that the Spirit of God is uh, given to someone in order to do work. So God is going to pour his spirit out into these two men, not to minister in the temple, but to build the temple, to do the craftsmanship of the temple. I think this is a really fantastic understanding uh, of work. Um, So again, let's, let's go back. A couple more examples. Joseph, uh, towards the end of Genesis, uh, He would have expected, I think, to see the promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He would have expected these promises to come to fulfillment. Yet, in his own life, what we see is he's sold into slavery and he ends up in Egypt. Um, But Joseph is faithful in all of his work and he prospers. Uh, And he prospers um, from Potiphar's servant to prison to ultimately ending up in second in command, and it does good work. And so he, in one sense, um, saves his people uh, from starvation because of the work that he does in Egypt. Um, So one author says this of Joseph's life. Joseph's life is a narrative of faithful work while suffering for doing good, but experiencing God's blessing in the midst of affliction. So Joseph, he is faithful in his work, little steps of faithfulness. Same with uh, Daniel, uh, who is also living in a foreign country, uh, but does faithful work uh, in the administration of a foreign kingdom. And, um, but we also see something interesting about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They also speak the truth in love. So they challenge uh, the leadership in issues of religious freedom and uh, matters of conscience. Um, Same with uh, Nehemiah, when he is also living away from Jerusalem, and he hears about the state of Jerusalem, that it's been destroyed, um, and it's in this state of disrepair. So Nehemiah's response is twofold. He prays and he fasts, but he also plans and calculates. So he knows who, where to go for supplies, who to get the supplies from, how much it's going to take to pay uh, for these supplies, and how long it's going to take to build. And so with Nehemiah, we see kind of two things. He's relying on God's power and God's guidance, but he is also doing work uh, in order to further the work of God. Um, same with Ruth. Uh, there's, so, there's so much there for Ruth, but... Um, We see throughout the book, again, little steps of faithfulness in the midst of this period of judges where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Here is Ruth, uh, who moves from her homeland to a different land with her mother in law. Um, And we see Boaz, this farmer. And this, who is also a kinsman redeemer. And so we see throughout the book, little steps of faithfulness in everyday life and everyday work um, that basically from their lineage comes David and also Christ. And so in the midst of everyday life and everyday work, there are little steps of faithfulness along the way. And so, uh, so to summarize, Adam in the garden, he is to in some sense be royal, He's to be a king, right? He's to have dominion over the earth. And he's also to be priestly in some ways. So he's to work and he's to keep the garden. Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. Jesus came as Israel's king from the line of David and also as Israel's priest from the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus creates a people who are as priests. Peter says a royal priesthood, so we see these two ideas kind of intertwining throughout the whole canon: uh, king and priest. Um, and so, in short form, that's that's basically the biblical narrative. I know I've not dealt with the New Testament too much. Um, maybe we'll get there. Uh, so, anyway, so so it's this biblical foundation, right, of work the small steps of faithfulness in the midst of everyday life, um, that foundation had been lost over uh, the course of hundreds of years from the early church into the Middle Ages until you get to the Reformation. So within, within the Catholic Church, there was this gaping hole between the sacred and the secular, between um, secular jobs of, of normal people and also the callings or vocations of Monks and nuns and priests and religious work. But what happens in the Reformation, um, because of the rediscovery of justification by faith, um, we no longer are justified by our works. And that frees us to go forth and to serve our neighbors. And so uh, what happens with the Reformation um, is that work is just the, the idea of work is just kind of blown open. That like the normal, everyday life uh, can be lived to God because of the priesthood of all believers, right? Because we are justified by faith and not by works, and everyone has access to God the Father through Jesus the Son by His Spirit. This kind of has been opened up. You don't have to, no longer have to go through the church uh, to receive uh, God and spiritual direction, um, and so. Everyone now, being priests, can serve God in the midst of, of everyday life. And so the the Reformation rediscovers this New Testament and Old Testament and biblical idea uh, of, of work and the priesthood of all believers. So they they take these New Testament commands, the one New Testament command, right? Love God and love your neighbor, and they work that out to its logical end. And it basically says something like this. Now, because God does not need our works, our works serve our neighbor. So genuine good works have to actually help someone. So the question for us in the midst of our everyday work is, who is my neighbor? Who are we serving? How does, how does my work in my particular person serve my neighbor uh, in the midst of everyday life? And how can I serve my neighbor with the love of God? Uh, Martin Luther uh, says it this way, that a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and the neighbor. He lives in Christ through faith and in his neighbor through love. By faith, he is caught up beyond himself into God. And by love, he descends beneath himself into his neighbor. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, God answers that prayer through the work of farmers and bakers. And I think today we would probably add uh, the truck drivers and the store clerks and the people who are stocking the shelves. We would add all these things. That when God answers our prayer, he answers it through our neighbors. Um, So the same as goes goes for us, Luther, actually in his commentary on Genesis says uh, something similar, that God himself milks the cow through the milkmaids. That it's when when the milkmaid milks the cow, it's actually God serving creation through the milkmaid. Um, So I I hear uh, pastors ask this question a lot. So when did you receive your call to ministry? And as I've been thinking about this, I actually want to turn the question around and say, when did you receive your call? to whatever work you're doing. Um, so I think a lot of times it's easier to see uh, God working in those lowly tasks, right? Of the farmers and the bakers and the milkmaids. And I think sometimes it's, it's harder to see um, how God is working and blessing those around us through say like Madison Avenue executives or Hollywood movie stars. I think we'll see uh, more on that in a minute. Um, but uh, John Calvin, um, I don't have this quote up there. John Calvin thinks that there are basically three, three results of our work on a daily basis. First, God is pleased. When we work, God is pleased uh, because uh, he is pleased with Christ in whom we are hidden through faith. So when we work, first thing, God's pleased. Second, uh, our neighbor is helped. That's the second result of our work. Our neighbor is helped um, because we don't have to fret over what we're doing and what we're bringing to God. We don't have to earn his approval by our work. We're actually free to be instruments of God's gift giving to others. And then the third benefit um, is that we also benefit. I benefit as well. That when God is glorified and my neighbor is served, in that In that itself, I also find great joy and satisfaction. So three results of our work. God is pleased. God created us to work. He didn't create us for work, but we are created to work. Um, God's pleased when we work. Second, our neighbors are helped. And third, we also benefit. And so because we rest in Christ's finished work, we also can work for others. And work now being restored and reintegrated into this great story of God serving us, uh, work becomes creative and liberating. Um, Michael Horton, uh, a scholar on the Reformation, says this about the Reformers. He says that, that what is truly revolutionary in the Reformers' perspective is that even our most common and everyday labors are now brought back into the flow of God's gift-giving. Here in God's gift-giving, God's gift uh, we are taken up Into God's loving action towards his creation. Not that we become co redeemers, uh, but we do become instruments through whom uh, God delivers his gifts of common and saving grace to others. So, since God himself has descended to us in swaddling clothes and hanging on a cross, we should not consider any calling menial or unimportant that when Christ, the God of the universe, uh, wrapped a towel around his waist to wash his disciples' feet, he dignified even the humblest of callings. And so no person and no service is beneath us as believers, as Christians, if it benefits others. So, my third point, the resurrection of work. How does Jesus himself change our understanding, change our view of work. So God created the material world, right? He saw that it was good. And then he entered into that material world, uh, becoming incarnate in Jesus. And he was born into a family, a particular culture. Uh, He was the son of a carpenter. He himself worked probably for 30 years as a carpenter, doing the everyday task, living everyday life of faithfulness in the shop of his father, probably. Um, He called fishermen and tax collectors to follow him, people who are familiar with the everyday work of life. And Andy Crouch again says this, we have solid evidence that Jesus understood his vocation, his sense of his role in God's story uh, and his epic intervention in human culture we have evidence that Jesus' vocation included the cross from early on, right? New Testament would say from maybe before the foundations of the world, right? So of all the creators and cultivators who have ever lived, Jesus himself is probably the most capable of shaping culture through his own talents and power. And yet the most culture-shaping event of his life is the result of his choice to abandon his talents and power on the cross. The resurrection shows us the pattern for culture-making in the image of God. Not power, but trust. Not independence, but dependence. So Christ used his work not for himself, but for the flourishing of others and for the glory of God. In the kingdom of In in the kingdom of God, a new kind of life and a new kind of culture become possible. Not by abandoning the old, not throwing it out, but by transforming it. Because that's what Christ is doing by his resurrection. There's the in-breaking of a new kingdom that's happening. So we don't throw out the old, but we try to transform it. And so even the cross, right? The worst that culture could do, the worst that work could do, right? You put together two pieces of wood and you nail a person to it. And they die there. That's the worst possible thing that you could do is transformed on the other side of the resurrection to this incredible sign of the kingdom of God and the realm of forgiveness and mercy and love and indestructible life. And I think Christian work tries to do the same thing. We try to transform work. So uh, Christ's work, I think, provides us a framework. So how do we... The question that I want you to ask that I hope you walk away with tonight is how, how does my work, how does your work reflect an aspect of God's work? How do you see the, not just your neighbors at work, not just the way that you live at work, but your actual work, the actual work that you do. How do you see that cooperating with God in his work? And I think uh, the resurrection provides us six ways that our work corresponds. So first, there's redemptive work. It's God's saving and reconciling action. So I think evangelists and pastors and counselors and peacemakers and writers, artists and poets can fit into that category. And I don't think you can, You just have to fit in just one. I think you can fit in a multiplicity. Um, so, But there's redemptive work. Secondly, there's creative work. Uh, that's God's fashioning of the physical and the human world. Um, so artists and sculptors and metal workers and carpenters, architects, writers, right? You're, you're involved in creative work. And so that's, that's, maybe that's a way that your work corresponds to God's work. And then third, there's providential work. So it's God's provision for sustaining of humans and creation. So I actually think parenting is God's providential work, caring, caring for, uh, this little person, uh. So parents and government work and farmers and first responders and engineers and bankers, right? It's work that a lot of times you don't see. You don't really see it, but it is provision for and sustaining of humans and creation. Fourth, there is justice work. So God's maintenance of justice. So judges and lawyers and prison wardens and guards and law enforcement, uh, that, those would be examples of uh, God's work of justice in the world. Fifth, there's compassionate work. So God's comfort and healing and shepherding and guiding. Again, I think parents fit into that. Doctors, nurses, social workers, nonprofits, counselors. And then sixth, uh, God's revelatory work. His work to enlighten with truth. So preachers and scientists, actually, uh, looking at creation, looking at what God has revealed in nature, journalists, journalists, uh, writing to tell the truth, and scholars, um, writers, etc. So uh, I will say this: there is there's a vocational sweet spot, I think, amid these categories. Great, I'm glad that picture is there. Um, so Frederick Biekner uh, says this: that vocation is where your deep gladness and the world's deep need meet. And I would add a third: I would add God's priorities. So your passion, your gifting, your deep gladness, the world's needs, and God's priorities. And I think, as believers, we should aim to find a sweet spot, somewhere in the middle. And so I have some examples of people who have grasped what it means to serve God in their work. They have found, in a way, their vocational sweet spot. Um, Four examples. First, Josiah Wedgwood. How many of you have heard of Wedgwood, China? By chance. Oh, great. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, so, Wedgwood, he was an English potter and he was a factory owner during the Industrial Revolution. Uh, that's the 1700s. And during this time, uh, rural and agrarian societies became urban and industrial, and factories began to spring up all over the place. The problem is that these factories are insufficient inefficient and inhumane uh, because the workers in these very first factories are separated from their families and separated from their communities. And so the work itself and the conditions uh, lacked boundaries and clear moral structure. So work was burdensome and harsh and meaningless. And Josiah Wedgwood proposed an alternative model in his factory. He said this, I will give you a clean, well-built place to live, In a real human community, I will help you see your work as something meaningful because it produces good things that make the world a better place. I will run my factory in a way that treats you with the dignity appropriate to you as a human being who does work that makes the world a better place. In return, you will show up on time and sober to work every working day. You will work all day at assigned tasks that you will master and do exceptionally. If you produce shoddy work, I will drop it on the floor and smash it, since I don't tolerate shoddy work. Because you're better than that, is what he says. And it worked. Quality increased, and his products were widely sought for their name and craftsmanship. Right? How many of you have heard of Wedgwood, right? Fantastic. Uh, Of course, you um, you may know the name, or actually... What he's more well known for is his role in the abolition of slavery slavery in England. Uh, He put his money and resources towards eliminating slavery and he wouldn't have had any of that without the day-to-day work in the factory. And so it's really interesting. He helps us to see the dignity of humanity in both the everyday work and in larger systems of the economy fighting for the abolition of slavery. And so, so yeah, so he would be one example. Secondly, uh, Cynthia Librock, I think is how you say her name. She's an interior designer in Colorado. She um, kind of grew into her vocational sweet spot. She kind of found it later in life. And so she's an interior designer. She said, I would try to make things beautiful. And I'd achieve my goal. I would finish my project. And at the end of it, I'd look at it and say, Well, what's the point? I just made it beautiful. I mean, it, it all seems so empty to me, she said. But then she got into, uh, she was offered this job to design housing for people with disabilities. And she had no experience developing housing and no experience working with people with disabilities. Um, But she wasn't satisfied in interior design, so she accepted the job. And the project for her marked a turning point. And she told a New York Times reporter this in 2009. I want people to know that no matter whether they have mental or physical disabilities, they're only disabled if they can't do what they want to do. Architecture can eliminate, maybe lessen, architecture can lessen disability by design. If you're in a house where you can do what you want to do, you're not disabled anymore. In another interview, she said this, With each step I take, it becomes clear to me that these two paths, as an architect and as a disciple, are not meant to be walked separately and independently of one another. The longer they overlap, and the longer they intersect, uh, and the further they intertwine and correspond, the more alive I become, and the more glory God has given. Third, David Grusel. Uh, And I referenced this passage earlier, but this is what he says. When God told Moses that he would fill Bezalel and Oholiab with the Spirit of God to do the craftsmanship on the tabernacle, it became clear to me that my calling as an architect is not secondary to the work that I do in and for the local church. In fact, it may be that God wants me to be the best architect I can be, even more than he wants me to teach Sunday school. It's tremendously freeing to realize that what God has uniquely created you to do is exactly what he wants you to do that you don't have to spend three-fourths of your life working at insignificant work just to go on a mission trip. All legitimate work is significant. All of it is valuable because it's all part of God's common grace, and it's for the common good. So that's David Grusel. He is actually an architect who designed the Pittsburgh Pirates Stadium and the Houston Astros Stadium. And I don't know if you've seen the Pirates Stadium, but It's fantastic. Uh, just over center field, you get this beautiful view of the Yellow Bridge that's crossing the river. Um, and Grusel apparently like walked around Pittsburgh for weeks and weeks and weeks, just trying to get a feel for the city to see what kind of stadium would go well in Pittsburgh. So I think he's kind of found his vocational sweet spot. Um, all right, last example. One of the most beautiful explanations of vocation, I think. I've ever heard, uh, was from a first grade teacher named Sharon Strawbridge in Pennsylvania. When asked how an aspect of her work reflects an aspect of God's work, she said, I get to do one of the most exciting and important jobs, helping children understand and love words. The Bible teaches us that God reveals himself through words and ultimately through the word Jesus So she gets to teach first graders words. I think that's just a really broad and a really beautiful understanding of vocation. She says this, this is a way to show them his character. Jesus highly values children. So loving and helping them to grow and learn uh, is is one of the best jobs. I'm able to do what some people would call the menial task of tying shoes, cleaning faces, comforting crying children, uh, caring for someone who's sick or homesick and needs mom. Yet, these are the most vital tasks. I get to love a room of children with different needs, and I'm able to get to know, love, and serve the families and parents of every child, both in my classroom and the school community as a whole. I keep those relationships year after year as they leave my classroom and grow with other teachers. So serving the, serving the parents with my fellow administrators and teachers is one of my greatest choice. But uh, the first part is really the best. I get to teach first graders words. That's a ah, oh, fantastic. I love it. So when, when Christians uh, integrate their faith in their work, performing uh, their work as a manifestation of discipleship, right? You're living out your faith in your workplace. Um, and the place where you spend most of your time, uh, you actually are um, infusing the spirit into the lives of people that you come into contact with every day. Uh, what we need is for Christians, coast to coast, to become models of economic blessing, starting with their own work and their own companies, but reaching out and blessing those around them as well. Our neighbors won't find our message plausible until they see in practice. How hard work and humanely productive companies are a blessing. So ordinary cultural contact with ordinary Christians uh, is how that's going to happen. So they're not going to understand how Christianity affects our work until they see our work itself. So um, I would say this. Perhaps the greatest Christian witness, the best opportunity uh, to share your faith in this century is going to be ordinary Christians doing ordinary things, in ordinary ways for an extraordinary purpose. So the doctrine of vocation is this theology of the Christian life. And it has to do with sanctification. It has to do with good works. And it has to do with serving your neighbor. Um, But it's also a theology of just really ordinary life. Uh, You don't have to be called to the mission field to do this kind of work or the ministry or evangelism, though many people are. And so uh, the Christian life is to be lived in the everydayness of life, as it were. And then in conclusion, I would say this, work in this life is uh, not the end of the story. So we're created to work, but we're not created for work necessarily. So fourth point, the renewal of work. Okay, the renewal of work. Have you ever read the first chapter of a book? And then flipped immediately to the end to figure out what happens. Oh, sorry. If you're, if you're that person, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> yep. So there are some books that if you did this, uh, it would completely blow your mind, right? Like, for example, Pride and Prejudice. If you read the first chapter and then you flip to the end, you would be completely confused as to how Elizabeth Bennett could change her opinions of Mr. Darcy, Right? You'd be totally confused. And I actually think that the same goes for the Bible. Um, That if you read, so Genesis 1 through 11, uh, you go from a garden to a city. And then if you flip to Revelation 21, you would hear, right, the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And you would think, ah, yes, God's starting over again. Clearly there's going to be a garden. But what you hear is, and there came down from God the heavenly city Uh, the new Jerusalem, and you think, what is happening? If God's starting over, shouldn't it be a garden? Um, But much like the garden, the city is God's own work, his own cultural work. Uh, The city is made of pure gold, and I don't know if you've... Pure gold is not clear as glass, which is what Revelation says. The city is made of pure gold, clear as glass, and it has jewels and pearls. And so this city is a product of gold that has been worked and crafted um, and cultivated. And so jewels themselves, which are line the walls, are minerals, but they're minerals plus work, right? They have to be cut and carved and uh, crafted in such a way that they, they're beautiful and they shine. And so uh, this city itself is full of God's handiwork. Um, both artifacts, gold that's clear as glass, but also people. Uh, and into the city, Revelation tells us, comes the glory and the honor of the nations. And some commentators say say this, that uh, the glory and the honor of the nations is maybe uh, that nation's best cultural artifact, the thing that they produce that maybe is the best or contributes most to the common good of the world. Um, and so the city is, uh, filled with human culture. So God has created a culture in this city, but it's also filled with human culture. So what I'm saying is, uh, heaven is not retirement basically. Like you don't just work on this, you don't work and then you just cease from your work. Um, Ezekiel 47 and Isaiah 60, they have this image of the new creation. Uh, Ezekiel specifically has this river flowing from the temple. Of course, in New Jerusalem, like Ezekiel couldn't imagine heaven without a temple. But of course, there is no temple for the dwelling place of God is with man. But in Ezekiel's vision, there's a river running from the temple. And by the river stand fishermen who are working and fruit trees that are producing crazy amounts of of fruit. And so um, Revelation is picking up on all these prophetic themes throughout and tying them all together. And it's giving us this picture that basically um, work is still valuable in new creation. I think we're going to work in heaven. Um, And knowing that Jerusalem is filled with the products of our own work frees us from really a religious reason to make all that's possible out of life Currently, and Dorothy Sayer says this: that the only Christian work is good work well done. In the New City, work itself becomes worship. Um, so Tim Keller Tim Keller says this. He says that Christianity provides you a sophisticated hope, without which work will frustrate you. And he tells this story. It's a story by J.R.R. R. Tolkien. It's called *Leaf* by Nigel. So Nigel is this painter and he wants to paint uh, this tree. He has this image of a tree in his head and he's going to paint it. And he works all of his life and he works really slowly and he works with a lot of interruptions that at the end of his life, when death comes, the only thing that Nigel has produced is a picture of a leaf. That's the only thing that he's painted. He has this tree in his head that he's going to paint, but he's worked so slowly that he's only got this leaf and um, he's riding to the mountains, so death, death comes and takes him away. It's a fictional short story, right? Uh, and he's riding to the mountains, which is where dead people go. And off to the right on the train, he sees this tree. And he jumps off the train, and he runs to the hill, and he sees, wow, this is the tree that I pictured. This is it. This is such a gift. And Christianity is saying this, that there is a tree that all of the ideas and hopes that we have for both ourselves and for our cities and for the work that we do in our life, we might just produce a leaf. But Christianity is saying, there is a tree. And I might argue more biblically, Christianity is saying, there is a city, right? So if we have this vision, um, that's, that's sophisticated hope, right? So, and this hope, this sophisticated hope, allows us to live, in the words of a New York City pastor, as pink spoons in the world. You know, those little uh, pink spoons that you get from Baskin-Robbins that give you uh, a foretaste of the ice cream to come? That's the work of Christians in our world. Through our life and through our work, we offer our neighbors foretastes of the coming kingdom. So... Any questions?
0: We've got time for questions. I'm going to ask you to speak into the microphone for the sake of the podcast. Uh, any questions leaping out at you to ask Mr. Bradley Patton?
1: I went long. Sorry about that. Yeah,
0: you did go a little long. That's okay. That's all right. Uh, I'll tell you what you need to cut afterwards. Great. That, uh, good. Looking forward to it. <laughs> any questions? Yeah, Emily. Let me run back there and uh, give this to you. Um, what advice would you have for someone who's not in their sweet spot of God's priority and yeah. um, their passion? And from that sense, is it okay if you never get there? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a great question. So I would uh, probably I would remind us all that we live life in seasons. And so I think that there are probably seasons of life where you really can't find your vocational sweet spot. And so I would say if you're living in in a time or or a season of your life where you're not in your vocational sweet spot, I would say that's okay. Uh, I would say you can still serve God and you can still serve your neighbor, even in work that sometimes seems meaningless or or frustrating. Um, But – i would I would say like too you maybe maybe you should consider or ponder uh is this work that I should be doing Does that makes sense not to cause any not to cause any unsurety or insecurity in work, but like is this is my is this my deep passion is this god's priority and is this fitting where the world uh hurts or is is needful um so i would say probably a combination of those two things we do live in seasons and so there are seasons of our life where um sometimes we will experience the frustration the futility of work um, but i would say that we're not without hope um in the midst of it um, because all work itself is is meaningful because in some way it is serving god and it is serving our neighbor so
0: great question emily another question Bradley, do you have any uh, books or resources that you would recommend yes. to read more about this topic?
1: Yes. So I actually have a sheet outside on the table. Um, yeah, man, so many books. If I had to, if I had to pick, if I had to pick a top three, I quoted from Andy Crouch uh, several times in the in there. He's probably just he's creative and engaging and. Um, yeah, Andy Crouch would be great if you're looking for short and really biblically uh, robust. I would say Jim Jim Hamilton's "Work and Our Labor in the Lord," um, and that one's really fresh off the presses. Like it came out a couple months ago, and it's it's very good. Um, and then if you're looking for a really uh, a really short uh, kind of primer on the Reformation understanding of vocation, I would say the last one, Gene Veith, "God at Work." Um, it's really helpful, and he kind of walks through lots of different vocations that we're serving in. So work as a parent and your job and so on and so forth. Basically, you're in, you're serving in a lot of different vocations at one time. So um, I guess those will be my top three. Um, but the whole list is great. Good question. Thanks. Good question.
0: I want to say it was a leading question so you could show off all the work Bradley did to compile that bibliography. Yeah. Mm-hmm. good. Um, I have a, I have a question I don't know if you can answer okay. uh, in talking to, uh, the answer is wisdom but I would love to hear your yeah. thoughts on how money relates to this
1: hmm. specifically um, like,
0: uh, the, um, I found my sweet spot but I don't make enough or yeah. this, is, this is what I want to do, but I also have this yeah. other calling to provide yeah. and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And, great. And what would you respond to with that? I, I,
1: do, have, I do have a response. Um, so there's a, a book that I've read called, uh, by Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, called An Altar in the World. And she uh, unpacks a little bit different of an understanding of vocation. She says, uh, there are people I know whose jobs are uh, an engineer, but whose vocation is to coach a little league team? Um, so you kind of get that idea right? Um, I was hesitant to bring that in because I want to say vocation is kind of all enhancing that you're not just working in a job uh, but your job is is a vocation of sorts, but I would say again, there are seasons of your life, so maybe you're in a season of life where. Your primary, the primary way that you're earning money is not what you actually, what your heart sings unbidden to do, um, but that you work, I don't, I don't know. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah,
0: it's good, but you, you also said at one point, and you said it really well, that like we don't work a terrible job so that we can go on mission trips. Totally. Uh, but that there, so there would have to be in the job part of it, the work part, some part of the sweet spot, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um.
0: I don't know. I don't. No, that's good. That's really good. Other questions? I've got a thousand of them. So uh, you guys better jump <laughs> in so that. Uh... Okay, we'll All get right. to our uh, our group discussion. Let's give Bradley a hand once again. Thank you so much, Bradley.